There is a part of me that, after being led in song as our choir and our musicians have just led us, that just wants to be still and quiet before the Lord. And just think about how good and awesome He is. And there's a part of me that just wants to pull out our songbooks and just keep singing some songs and rejoicing before the Lord. There's part of me that wants to turn to certain passages in the Bible where we read about the holiness and the grandeur and the greatness and the might and the beauty and the majesty of our Lord. And there are those places all throughout Scripture. But I'm going to stick with what the Lord has laid on my heart for us today. And while it may not be one of those passages, I think if we'll allow the Lord to speak into our hearts this morning, and if we will respond appropriately and obediently, we'll find ourselves in the same place, rejoicing in a God who is both holy and also full of grace and mercy towards us. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to open up to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. While you're turning there, let me ask you a question. Have you ever encountered something that looked good on the outside, but on the inside was a whole other story? Or a whole nother story. That's how we normally say it, right? I was thinking about that. I said, we, that's not even a word, another. But that's how we say it, a whole nother story. Well, boxes of assorted chocolates fall into this category. I've never seen a piece of chocolate in a box of chocolates that didn't look good. Now, I know there are a few oddballs out there today that uh, don't really like chocolate, okay? Uh, there's, there's, if you're thinking, really? Yes, I know some. I could name at least one by name, but I won't say his name. All right, I'll let Matt go undetected. But, but, even though I've never seen a piece of chocolate in a box of chocolates that didn't look good, they all look so promising. The problem is that they all don't deliver on that promise. Some are delicious. In fact, I would say most of them are delicious. But there seems to be always two or three that have some sort of weird, fruity flavor underneath that coating of milk chocolate and it leaves this bad taste in your mouth anybody with me on that you know what i'm talking about there's always just a couple in there the outside tastes good but the pleasure of the milk chocolate on the outside is quickly very quickly replaced by the odd and sometimes terrible taste on the inside it seems to just linger on my taste buds often far longer than i want it to these pieces of of chocolate they are deceiving they are they look so good but they are not so good they look so satisfying but they leave you worse than when they found you you know what i mean i mean they provide pleasure but the pleasure they provide is very short-lived now perhaps that is an overly dramatic description of the dark side of a box of chocolates Perhaps now you know how much I love chocolate, if you didn't already. But 
it is a very accurate description of the dark side of sin. See, sin is anything that misses the mark of God's perfection. Sin is doing what God said not to do or not doing what God said to do. Sin is any thought, word, or action that does not point to God as the only one worthy of holding ultimate authority over our lives. Think about it that way. Anything that we do that doesn't point to God as the one who is in charge of our lives, anything I do that points to me being in charge of my life or someone or something else being in charge of my life, it is sin. And sin may seem easy to recognize on paper, but out in the world it has a way of just flipping into our lives undetected. Sin is deceitful. It looks good, but it is not. God's Word describes God's enemy and our enemy as the deceiver. He comes disguised, God's Word says, as an angel of light, but it's only a disguise. He offers pleasure, but he quickly replaces the pleasure with destruction. He promises life, but listen, church, he only brings death. There is a dark side to sin that we must be aware of. And God's Word warns us over and over of the dangers of sin. In the pages of Scripture, we've got example after example after example of sin's deceitful and destructive nature. And I think it would serve us well to take these examples seriously so that we will learn to take sin seriously in our lives. Today I want us to give serious consideration to a moment or you could say a series of moments in the life of King David. And as we see King David fail to take sin seriously, my prayer is that, one, we will better understand the dark side of sin so we won't be deceived by it. And as we grow in our understanding of the dark side of sin, I also pray that we will be better equipped in our daily battle against sin and be drawn to the sinless King who is our only true defense. Second Samuel chapter 11, this is the Word of God. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark 
and Israel and Judah dwell in booths or tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises and he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at the Bez? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. So the messenger came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field. But we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Heavenly Father, teach us from your word. Instruct us. Give us teachable spirits. In Jesus' name, amen. You have the story. Maybe it's familiar to you. Maybe it's the first time you've heard it. Long story short, David's supposed to go to war. He doesn't. Sees a woman. He lusts after her. Brings her to his house. Sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. Then, while his battle, his army is out fighting the battle, he sends instructions to have the woman's wife, who is one of his uh, best soldiers, we read about other places in Scripture, sent home. The reason he wants him sent home is so that he can frame him as the father of the child of this man's wife. But Uriah proves more noble than King David. It was actually written in the law that while the soldiers were fighting, they weren't to go home and be with their families. They were to focus on the fighting and so Uriah obeys the law that David, the king, is trying to get him to break. When David finds that that plan doesn't work, he sends him back, tells them to get close to the wall of the city, which is a terrible battle strategy, and he knows it, and they know it from history. He even recounts a time in history 
where men died because they were too close to the wall, but he sends his army close, knowing that people are going to be killed. Then he has them fall back, except for Uriah. Uriah is killed. And this thing that David did displeased the Lord. I want you to notice with me seven truths. And I know you're thinking, oh my goodness, seven. Don't worry. Don't flip out. Seven is the perfect number, right? <laughs> hang, hang with me. Because some of these we're going to go through fairly quickly. Two of them really are almost the same. But I want to look at them on two different sides. But I just... I want you to notice with me this morning seven truths from 2 Samuel 11 which reveal the dark side of sin. The first is this. Sin may seem beneath you, but it doesn't care who you are. Sin may seem beneath you, but it doesn't care who you are. This story revolves around the actions of one man who sinned. Okay, But before we focus on that plot line, we've got to recognize who this one man is. This one man David, this is David, King David to be exact. King David was the second of the kings of Israel. King David was arguably the greatest of Israel's earthly kings. King David was God's chosen king. King David was an accomplished military general. Before he even became king, he was seen as great in the eyes of the people. The people compared him to Saul, the first king. Do you remember what they would say? In fact, they would sing this. They would say, Saul has struck down his thousands... And David, his ten thousands. King David had defeated Goliath as a boy and whole armies as a man. King David had conquered Israel's enemies. King David ushered in what we could call the golden years, so to speak, of the nation of Israel. King David was great. But King David was still a human. You see, even though King David had risen higher in power and status and reputation than everyone around him, even though he was a part of God's chosen people and was God's chosen king to lead God's chosen people, even though he had experienced great success, he had not risen to a height such that sin was unable to reach him. Listen, we must realize that as long as we live in these earthly bodies, we are susceptible to sin. Sin doesn't care who you are. Sin doesn't care who I am. Sin is no respecter of persons. Sin will reach down into the lowest gutter and sin will reach up to the highest earthly throne. From the pauper to the prince, from the cradle to the grave, sin can creep into anyone's life. And Christian, that includes you and that includes me. Remember, we're not talking here about Nebuchadnezzar, the wicked king of Babylon. We're not talking here about kings like Manasseh or Ahab, wicked kings of Israel and Judah. We're talking about the king appointed by God to whom God gave great blessing and success, who reigned over God's people as a, quote, man after God's own heart. If you were to flip back to 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 14, you'd find these words. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. This isn't just some guy out in the world who happens to have stumbled upon success. He is successful. He is a victorious king because of the Lord in his life. David was not only on top of the world from a human standpoint, he was on top of the world spiritually. He was God's man doing God's will, leading God's people into victory after victory after victory. But sin doesn't care who you are. 
Sin doesn't care how old you are. Sin doesn't care how much money you have or how much influence you have or what position you have. Sin doesn't care how long you've been a Christian or how many years you've taught Sunday school or how many times you've served as a deacon or how many church committees that you've served on or how many times you've been to youth camp or how many mission trips you've been on or how much money you've given to the church or how large the church is that you pastor or how long you've been faithful to your spouse or how good of a reputation you have as a parent or how pure you've stayed as a single person or how many times you've read your Bible or been been to church. Sin does not care. I was watching one of those fail compilation videos, you know, where people fail doing things. Sometimes the failing is falling. Sometimes they are doing dumb stuff. Sometimes it's accidents, but they put all these little video clips together and then we sit there and we laugh at other people's expense. Well, I was doing that. And, um, and, and but this is one of my favorites. And, and, and don't don't lie now. OK, uh, most of you, maybe not most of you will laugh, too. All right. This was one of those where it was people falling um, off the treadmills. You know what I'm talking about? Now, I'm just going to tell you, when you fall on a treadmill, it's not graceful. There's no graceful fall off a treadmill. I mean, it, it makes my body hurt watching. But when somebody's going to play around on them and have somebody videotape them, or sometimes they're videotaping themselves, and that's a recipe for disaster, selfie video on a treadmill, you're going down, I promise you, Okay. But if they're going to put those little videos together, I'm, I'm going to watch. You know, maybe I'll, I'll, learn, I'll learn my lesson. I was, I was watching one of those, a bunch of clips of people falling on treadmills all strung together. And, um, and, and one thing I noticed as I was watching was about the wide variety of the people who were falling. I mean, there were probably, there were people on there who probably had never looked at a treadmill in their life. There were also people who, on there who looked like they lived on a treadmill. But you know what? The treadmill didn't care how athletic or in shape or skilled at running the people were. Each of those people fell as hard and as fast as the next. The treadmill was no respecter of persons. And in a much more serious way, neither is sin. Listen, if there's a sin of which you say, I would never do that. I don't struggle with that. Beware of the dark side of sin. You may think sin is beneath you, but sin doesn't care who you are. Truth number two is this. Sin may seem far off, but it's closer than you think. Sin may seem far off, but it is closer than you think. Notice where David is when this downward plunge into sin begins. He's at home. He, he, he's not out in the bars. He's not out with his buds. He's not out roaming the streets where the prostitutes stay. He's at home. And in a moment, we'll probably see that he shouldn't really have been at home. However, David probably thought that he was in a safe place when it came to temptation. He was simply walking around his house. I mean, that's what he's doing there in the beginning. He's just walking around his house. He was simply sitting in his house when he began dwelling on this woman who wasn't his wife. He was simply at home when he inquired as to who this woman was and made his request for her to be brought to him. King David, Scripture doesn't tell us, but King David probably didn't wake up that morning and think, I'm getting ready to enter in an enemy territory. There are going to be lots of opportunities for me to stumble into sin today. Before my feet hit the floor, I better make sure that I'm on guard. I don't think that went through David's mind that morning. Now, in his mind, the battle was out on the battlefield where his army was at. 
The battle wasn't in his palace. He had stayed behind. He was in a safe place. He had nothing to worry about. But listen, church, he was wrong. And so are we if we think the same way. Opportunities to sin exist wherever we exist. Opportunities to sin exist wherever we exist. God's word tells us that temptation comes from within us and that the heart is deceitful above all else. We wake up on the battlefield. We live all day on the battlefield and we go to sleep on the battlefield. The opportunity to sin is there with every word we speak, with every look we take, with every thought that we think. Every time your spouse or your kids or your boss or your co-workers gets on your nerves, the opportunity to speak a harsh word is there. Every time that co-worker or friend or neighbor who you find attractive pops in your mind, the opportunity to lust is there. Every time something doesn't go your way, the opportunity to complain is there. And yes, complaining is a sin. Every time you are with your group of friends or co-workers who like to talk about others, the opportunity to gossip is there. Every time you get bad news or get sick or have a bad day, the opportunity to doubt the goodness of God is there. Every time someone disagrees with you about politics, the opportunity to belittle them is there. Every time we pick up our smartphone or our tablet, the opportunity, I guarantee you, to sin is there. Every, t- every time we wake up and live another day, the opportunity to sin is there. It doesn't matter how safe from sin the place is where you're at. It doesn't matter how harmless the activity is in which you are engaging. Sin is as close to us as our hearts and minds. Remember what God told Cain? He said, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you. It's crouching at the door. Friends, sin has not changed like a lion just waiting for the prey to get comfortable and think that no danger is lurking. Sin is waiting on you to put down your guard. Just lower it just for a moment. It only takes a second. One word, one lingering thought, one swipe of the screen, one flirtatious look, one angry action, one sip too many, and sin is ready to pounce. You're not, nor will you ever be, at a place in your life where you can let down your guard against the schemes of the enemy. The same is true for me. If there's a sin of which you say, I don't struggle with that anymore. I don't have to worry about falling into that sin while I'm here or while I'm doing this or that. Beware of the dark side of sin. Sin may seem far off, church, but it is closer than you think. Truth number three. Sin may seem small, but it will not stay small. Sin may seem small, but it will not stay small. Notice, notice the progression of sin in chapter 11. I mean, it starts first with David not being where he was supposed to be. Did you catch that? It's the time of the year when the kings go out to war. What is David? He's a king. What time of the year is it? Time when they go out to war. What was the king in this day and time, especially with the battles that were going on? The king was the military general. I mean, that was, that was pretty much his main job. It's the time when the kings go to war. David is sitting at home. And then he saw a woman. He lusted after her. Then he committed adultery with her. Then he deceived her husband, who was one of his best soldiers. Then he devised a murderous plot. Then he had her husband murdered. And then he acted like all was well in the world. It started small. He just was in a place he wasn't supposed to be. But it didn't stay small. 
You see, sin is rarely an isolated event. Sin often leads to other sin. And as it does, it just grows and grows. It grows. How many of you are hoping that snow was going to make its way a few miles further south this week? Nobody. (laughs) Me either, really. I didn't really want it anyways. You You know what happens when you start rolling snow? It gets bigger, right? You roll it down that hill, and it gets bigger, and it gets bigger, and it gets bigger, and it gets bigger. So does sin. Just like snowball grows as you push it, sin often grows if we don't deal with it properly. You see, the reason sin works this way is because we often end up having to commit another sin to cover up from the first sin, and then we've got to commit a third sin to cover up from the second sin. You know what I'm talking about. You do something that you weren't supposed to do, and then you've got to lie about it so you don't get caught. The snowball's rolling. And it's getting bigger. David stayed when he should have gone. And before you know it, sin began to pile up. He committed sexual immorality in the form of lust and sexual immorality in the form of adultery. He engaged in lying, deceit, and trickery. He tried to get Uriah to break the law. He stole another man's wife. He murdered. All because he started off in the wrong place. I can guarantee you all those sins were not on David's radar screen when he inquired about the woman in verse 3. That's a part of the dark side of sin. Sin will take you further into darkness than you ever intended to go. You remember a, a couple of years ago, I, I get my dates mixed up, but um, those, remember those Thai boys that got lost in that cave and it was all over the news? Do you remember that? Listen, they only intended to go into the darkness for a few hours. But the darkness held them for days and days. When it comes to sin, we often underestimate the power of sin and we overestimate our ability to resist sin. Can I say that one more time? When it comes to sin, we often underestimate the power of sin and we overestimate our ability to resist sin. You say, I'll only try it this one time. Well, I'll only go this far. But before you know it, you're deep in a cave of sin and you don't have a clue which way is up. Someone once said, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Listen, church, if there's a sin of which you say, I'll only do it one time, beware of the dark side of sin. Sin may seem small, but it won't stay small. Truth number four, sin may seem to bring only pleasure, but it ends up bringing destruction. Sin may seem to bring only pleasure, but it ends up bringing destruction. See, we don't just see David in this passage sinning. We also begin to see the destruction that his sin brings. Now, I say that we begin to see the destruction that his sin brings because the destruction lasts way beyond chapter 11. But there's plenty of destruction right here in this chapter. You know that David's sin, it doesn't start with destruction. Look at verse 1. Look at verse 2. Look at verse 3. There's no, there's no destruction there. In fact, it starts out the opposite of destruction, but that's part of the dark side of sin. Sin starts out fun. It starts out pleasurable, but it doesn't say that. stay there. I'm sure that David enjoyed his sin in verse 4. It was fun. It brought him pleasure. Sin normally does. And not just this type of sin that we see here. 
the sin that David commits in verse 4. Have you ever said something like this? I know I should not have said that to her, but it just felt so good to give her a piece of my mind. Sin is pleasurable. Sin can actually make us feel good. Like a rattlesnake in a flower bed, the sweet aroma is quickly forgotten when the stinging bite of what lies beneath hits you full force. In the book of Hebrews, we read about the, quote, fleeting pleasures of sin. Even the Bible says that sin is pleasurable, but it says that it's fleeting pleasure. In other words, it's a pleasure that runs away really fast. It's here and then gone. And what does it leave in its wake? A path of destruction. The book of Proverbs contains this verse more than once. There's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. Sin looks good on the outside, church, but it always, always, always leads to destruction. If there's a sin of which you say, I just want to have a little fun, beware of the dark side of sin. Sin may start out pleasurable, but in the end, it leads to destruction. But before we leave the destruction that sin brings, we've got to realize that this destruction doesn't affect just you or me, the sinner. This is the one where I said these two kind of go hand in hand with one another. We can't talk about destruction without talking about more than just David in this passage of Scripture. Truth number five is this. Sin may seem to hurt only you, but it ends up hurting those around you. Sin may seem to hurt only you, but it ends up hurting those around you. Notice the destruction that sin brings in this passage. A marriage is destroyed. A man's life was destroyed. A wife's husband was destroyed. A military commander was complicit in the destruction of a man. Men in the army were destroyed. A king's reputation was destroyed. And if we read on in the story beyond chapter 11 which we may do in the next couple of weeks, we'll find that the child that Bathsheba gives birth to as a result of David's sin dies. Then David's family is torn apart, and then the kingdom is almost torn apart. Listen, your sin brings destruction into your life and into the lives of those around you. Just think about it for a second. Think about examples of sin in your life. Maybe even sin that you've committed in the past week. Think about it for a moment. Harsh words destroy your relationships with your children or your spouse or your friends or family members. Gossip destroys the reputation of a person. Pornography destroys your mind. And if you're married, eventually your marriage. Divorce rips apart families. Overeating destroys your body. Laziness destroys your ability to serve others. Drunkenness and drugs destroy relationships and destroy careers. David sinned, but ultimately the whole kingdom was impacted. If there's a sin of which you say, nice, nah, might hurt me, but it's not hurting anyone else. Beware of the dark side of sin. Sin may seem to hurt only you, but it ends up hurting those around you. Truth number six. Sin may seem to go unnoticed, but God notices it, and He hates it. Sin may seem to go unnoticed, but God notices it, 
and he hates it. As chapter 11 draws to a close, we cannot skip over or read too quickly the very last line. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Of all the concluding statements to this chapter, that's the one that God chose to put there. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David may be the main human character in chapter 11, but there's someone far more important than him in chapter 11, and that's God. Why is it that David's actions were wrong? Who gets to determine what is right and what is wrong? What makes sin, sin? The answer, God. God. That holy God that we spent some time this morning singing about. God is creator. Therefore, he has the authority to tell us what is right and wrong. God is holy. Therefore, everything that stands against God and his character is sin. God is just. Therefore, he cannot turn a blind eye towards our sin. God is righteous. Therefore, he must punish sin. And God is life. And therefore, the just punishment for sin is death. None of David's actions matter if God does not exist or if he doesn't notice us or if he doesn't care. But listen, church, God does exist. God does notice and God does care. God is too holy to excuse sin and he's too loving not to care about us and our sin. Sin is wrong because it brings displeasure to God. Sometimes we're more concerned that a spouse or a parent or a boss found out what we did. We ought to be more concerned that God already knows what we did, even if no one else knows about it. Your sin, my sin, it displeases God. So if there's a sin of which you might say, no one will know, or God knows, but he won't be too concerned about it. Beware of the dark side of sin. Sin may go unnoticed, but God notices it and hates it. Now, you may be thinking, Zach, that's a pretty depressing sermon. I mean, I mean, we just we spent 20 or 30 minutes singing about the glory and the majesty and the awesomeness of God. And man, just this all just time of rejoicing. And then you. Then you gotta, you got to talk about sin. Well, this message may seem kind of depressing, but it's a pretty depressing chapter if you ask me. It's a chapter about sin. And sin is dirty and destructive and dark. It may appear to have a light side, but really every side of sin is dark. Every side is. However, there's good news, church. There is good news. While sin may be dark, a light has shone into the darkness. One has come who is the light of the world, and his light has the power to drive out the darkness of sin. Truth number seven, sin may seem unstoppable, but Jesus nailed it to the cross. Sin may seem unstoppable, but Jesus nailed it to the cross. Sin just seems to be running wild in chapter 11. And not just in chapter 11, but all throughout the pages of Scripture. And ever since Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit in the garden, sin has been running wild throughout history. And sometimes, sometimes it seems unstoppable. 
It really does. And perhaps today sin is running wild in your life. And perhaps it seems unstoppable. I have good news for you. I have good news. Jesus stopped sin dead in its tracks when he nailed it to the cross. Colossians chapter 2, we find these words in verses 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. In other words, sin was running wild in your life. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. As the soldiers nailed Jesus to the cross, Jesus was nailing our sins to the cross. And through him, we can be forgiven and find victory over the sin in our lives. Romans chapter 7, we find these words. The Apostle Paul writing in verse 21, he says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Remember what God told Cain? Sin is crouching at the door. Thousands of years later, Paul says the same thing. I find this law to be in me, that when I want to do right, evil is right there. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. It's that battlefield that we live in every day. Paul says, wretched man that I am. I wonder if if that's your self-examination today. A wretched man that I am. A wretched woman that I am. A wretched boy, a wretched girl. When I look at my life, I see sin and I see it running wild. But Paul says, a wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Praise God, there's an answer. And it's not no one. In the next verse, he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will be able to stop the sin that seems unstoppable in my life? But thanks be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is able. David may have been king, but listen, church, he wasn't the king of kings. David may have conquered earthly armies. But he couldn't conquer sin. A greater king was coming. Oh, he was coming. And church, a greater king has come. And his name is Jesus. So let me ask you a question. Are you trapped in a downward spiral of sin? Turn to Jesus. Don't try to stop it on your own. You can't do it. Christian, are you struggling with a particular sin in your life? Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Find forgiveness and restoration and the power to live a holy life at the cross. Listen, if there is a sin of which you are tempted to say, I will never overcome that. Beware of the dark side of sin. Because sin may seem unstoppable, but Jesus has nailed it to the cross. 
Run to him today. Find your refuge in him today. Bow to the king of kings today. Church, there is a dark side to sin. So please, please, please beware. But there is a light that hell itself cannot snuff out. And so rejoice. Run from sin. Run to Jesus. Hate sin. Rejoice in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may Your Word penetrate deep into our souls. Father, if there is any bit of sin, a little bit or a lot, Father, may we cast ourselves before the cross of Christ. Asking for forgiveness from the only one who can and is willing to forgive. And that is you. You have the ability. You have made it a reality by sending Christ. Father, we just have to humble ourselves before the King of Kings. Father, where David failed, Jesus did not. He was the sinless king who offered his life for us. Father, may this moment not pass us by without us bringing our sin before you and receiving mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.